0: My name is James Whitmore and welcome to Econ19, a brand new podcast from the University of Melbourne where we go inside the corona crash. Over the coming season, we'll be investigating the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll look at the mechanics of the economy, how we got to this point and where we go from here. Like many of you, I've been working from home for the past several months due to the pandemic. So this podcast is recorded in a makeshift studio. So please excuse any unusual sounds you hear in the background. Today we're starting with the big picture. We're joined by a University of Melbourne academic who's been one of the leading commentators since the pandemic began. My name is Chris Edmund. I'm a professor of economics at the University of Melbourne. So I wanted to ask you, Chris, how does a virus cause a recession?
1: Well, a virus need not, right? But here the issue is a particularly uh, virulent virus in the sense that it's very contagious and the health consequences are significantly pronounced. So you know the common cold doesn't cause a recession because although it's very virulent the health consequences are not particularly serious most of the time you know influenza is something in between where it's you know also quite virulent and it is more serious and um here we're talking about a, a virus that is uh, even more easy to transmit and where the health consequences are considerably larger and so because of those consequences you then have sort of two kinds of economic reaction you have like what we might call a private economic reaction of, of individual households and families deciding to do less of the kinds of activities that might expose them to the virus so being less willing to go to you know to a bar less willing to go to a restaurant less willing to kind of go to a concert less willing to go to a movie so even absent any kind of policy decisions, people would be cutting back on their economic activity. And then we have a second thing, which is that people may be cutting back on their economic activity because they fear being exposed to the virus, but they may not fear it enough. Right? They, in economics, we talk about externalities, positive and negative externalities. and So these are situations where an individual doesn't take into account enough their effects on people nearby them so the classic example of a negative externality is pollution so a factory that emits pollution is doing so partly because it doesn't take into account the social consequences of the pollution it emits in a virus situation i may be going maybe less willing to go to a bar or a restaurant but my the amount by which i'm sort of reducing my going to a bar or a restaurant is perhaps not as much as I should be if I was thinking about sort of the the, 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 the social need. There's probably going to be too much transmission going on relative to, w- to what would be ideal. And so that's where government policy comes in to say, look, we can't rely on individuals in a kind of like laissez-faire way, just voluntarily deciding on their own risk assessments and deciding to stay home because they fear the virus. We need more than that because individuals aren't taking into account enough the consequences of their individual risk-taking actions on people nearby them. We also need regulation here to tamp down on the kinds of economic activity that are kind of most conducive to spreading the virus. So we have two interacting features. So one is like the individual, the decisions that people will be making anyway to reduce their economic, economic activity. And then the kind of extra reductions in economic activity that come about because of the kind of the policy response. So those two things combining to kind of create a kind of a big reduction in in economic activity.
0: So Chris, can you tell us what a recession is and why is it bad?
1: A recession is, is bad because that's a situation where the labor market really, really deteriorates, where unemployment increases a lot. So lots of people lose their jobs people who are currently unemployed or out of the labor market find it much more difficult to find jobs, the situation where wages grow or grow more slowly than normal. And so we usually think of a recession as being the kind of situation where across the board, many, many households are suffering. If you're like an undergraduate and you graduate, in a recession, that is to say you're kind of looking for your first real job in in a recession. We kind of know from from economic research that the kind of the negative consequences of having to take that first job in the midst of a downturn kind of like linger for a long, long time. People who are older in life who become retrenched in a recession may find it much, much more difficult to get back into the labor market than they would have in, in kind of normal times. So it's much more likely that somebody who, is, say, 55 or 60 and who kind of loses their job in the middle of the recession may be kind of, in some sense, involuntarily retired, becoming much, much more difficult to kind of find comparable work again. So for both for the young and for the old, you know, recessions are kind of bad news. Now, what do we mean by a recession? So, so there's a kind of a technical definition, but basically the, the idea is a recession is a time of pronounced contraction in ec- economic activity. So the economy normally grows around about 2% per year in a kind of ordinary year. Right? Each year, because of population, because of technical in- progress, because of other things, the economy tends to get a bit bigger, from you know, about 2% or so bigger year on year. So if that growth slows down, that's one thing. That's a situation where the economy overall is is getting bigger but at a slower rate so living standards maybe are going up but not as much as before and so we were experiencing a growth slowdown in the last couple of years in sort of 2017 2018 it was clearly the case that growth was slower than usual wages were growing slower than usual but still it was the case that the economy was getting bigger just at a slower rate a recession is something more than that it's where the economy is is not just getting at a slower rate is actively shrinking and we normally to kind of avoid some sort of issues of like false positives say when the economy has been shrinking for about half a year or more So we say two quarters or more then we say officially you're in recession
0: how does this recession compare to ones we've seen previously I mean is this as bad as the Great Depression
1: not yet uh, probably not So let me kind of back that up a bit. So we're still in the midst of it. We won't really be able to answer that question uh, until we're clearly out of it. So far, it looks like this recession will be the, for the Australian economy at least, the worst since the Second World War, since since in in, in the post-war period, but probably not as severe as the Great Depression so far. I mean, based on what we can kind of see at the moment. It's a very unusual, kind of recession in, in in various ways so one is that the severity of the onset of the recession was particularly pronounced we basically had what is sometimes referred to as a sudden stop like the economy was kind of ticking along fairly normally in February early March even though we already had like rumblings of the coronavirus situation um, and then in March like we had like a real crunch. Um, and that, that is very, very much borne out by the labor market data that we've seen and by everybody's common awareness of the lockdown situation in, in, in March and April and, and May. So, the decline in economic activity that we've experienced over those months is likely to be an extremely sharp decline compared to previous recessions. The most important question for us is like when we find our bottom, like when we find the trough, when we find the bottom. And, and things start to turn around. How quickly will it turn around? Will it turn around as quickly as it fell? Probably not. But will it turn around and recover quickly or slowly? That That's the huge question ahead of us. And that's where like economic policy, macroeconomic policy has a huge role to play in like trying to ensure that the economy recovers as much as possible, consistent with like
0: not undermining like the the public health goals of keeping the, the virus under check. The economic effects continue long after we get the virus under control. Why is that? Why doesn't why doesn't the economy just um, recover as soon as we lift restrictions?
1: There are two things there. So one is just on the kind of the, the unusual sort of viral aspects of this recession, and the other is like why do we always take a long time to recover <laughs> from all recessions? Um, so on the on the first one, it kind of comes back to what I was saying a few, a few minutes ago that you know even absent uh, like a lockdown, any even absent any kind of official policy, you know people were beginning to stop going to you know to, to bars and restaurants to, to the same extent as they previously would, not going to kind of events with like large crowds. Now that that won't be uniformly true across all people. Some people are more risk tolerant than others, and some people will find that the economic circumstances are such that they have to engage in activity that might be seen as being sort of risky. But um, overall, people will be doing less economic activity than they would have in the, in the kind of like the pre-virus world. And the other thing is that the, re- the, the mere fact of the recession, this is true for kind of all recessions, um, it leaves a kind of scar tissue on the economy, right? It takes. Like you have businesses going out, like, like going insolvent, like, like, like shutting down. Uh, even those that, that, that don't shut down, they maybe let a lot of people off. And it takes time for businesses to feel that like their economic circumstances have improved enough for them to kind of go through to the trouble of hiring and like expanding again.
0: Back in April, Chris and three of his colleagues wrote an open letter to Prime Minister Scott Morrison about social distancing restrictions. Back then, quite a few people were calling for physical distancing restrictions to be lifted and they were arguing that the lives saved were not worth the damage to the economy. Chris and his colleagues argued the best we can do is to limit the spread of the virus and we have to address the public health crisis before we can fix the economic crisis. To date, it's been signed by 289 Australian economists. So I want to ask you about trade-offs. Throughout this pandemic there's been a lot of talk about the trade-off between health on the one hand um, and the economic cost of restrictions on our activity that are designed to keep us healthy Um, and you've played a fairly large role in this debate can you just tell us about what you've been doing I mean you led an open letter um, and what your take on this trade-off is
1: in our open letter, we kind of wanted to make two points. So so one is that we were going to get a recession anyway, right? That that what we might call like the, the individual level response to the situation was such that there was going to be a large reduction in economic activity, whether the government had locked down um, sec- sectors of the economy or not, right? And then, so the question was not could we avoid a recession versus not avoid a recession, it was, could we avoid a recession plus a public health meltdown and just have the recession and that's kind of the situation we're we're basically in and then a kind of a second thing that i was involved in was sort of saying well but that that that's all well and good except that the consequences of the recession are not are not felt um evenly right some people some segments of society disproportionately bear the brunt of an economic downturn. In particular, sort of the poorest um, you know, uh, low income households and individuals bear the brunt of the recession to a much greater extent than others. And that can be both because they have less income, but also typically because the kind of jobs that they're doing um, are some of the ones that were most affected by the shutdowns.
0: What kind of economic considerations go into these decisions about how much, how far the restrictions should go? Um, one thing we've spoken about is this value of a human life, the economic value of a human life. Can you just tell us about that and explain how it's used?
1: Okay, so all kinds of government decision makings involve what is referred to as cost-benefit analysis. So basically there's some budgetary cost of some program and that program brings some benefits. Now, sometimes those benefits are strictly monetary or sort of easy to think about in monetary terms. So let's put those ones aside. But often the benefits of some government program are measured in terms of lives saved um, or illness reduced. So other kinds of non-monetary benefits. And so there's always a question of how do you translate, how do you kind of assess which programs to spend money on like you kind of say you have like, you know, $10 million to allocate and you say, I want to allocate it to the, the ones that have the highest, like bang for my buck. But what does bang for the buck mean when you have all of these different programs with different, say, different health benefits? So it's then standard to try and convert various notions of health benefits into a monetary figure. And every, every country does this. Every government, you know, around the world does this in, in, with slightly different methodologies um and assigns a a value to a quote-unquote statistical life so that's to say an average life and where does this number so that number is in australia is about 4.9 million dollars just under 5 million you might say well where does that number come from like and it basically comes from looking at the willingness of people to do riskier jobs for more income. So imagine I said, look, here is a job like working in like this very dangerous occupation. And I look at somebody else. I I look at two people who have very, very similar skills, very, very similar like demographic characteristics. And I see sometimes people take the risky job with high compensation. And sometimes they take the less risky job for lower compensation. And then I look at that so-called compensating differential. I look at that uh, extra income that people um, seem to be willing to accept as compensation for the extra risk that they are taking on in that risky job. So that, that compensation is an input to these kind of value of a statistical life calculations. It's kind of like a blown up version. I think it's notable that Australia has a relatively low value of a statistical life compared to some other countries that we would normally benchmark ourselves against. This is always done to some extent. Now, I don't think that these numbers were actually really used uh, in the government's policy response. I think there was more of a kind of like fine by the seat of its pants, you know, gut reaction kind of uh, decision making going on in March. Like nobody was sitting down doing formal. Like numerical cost-benefit analysis using those kinds of numbers. That still, I get invoked as a way of conceptually thinking about these kinds of problems. Like, how much money would you be willing to spend? How much, you know, job loss might you be willing to entertain in order to reduce, you know, mortality risk or other kinds of health risks to people?
0: So the government immediately splashed billions of dollars on welfare and wage subsidies. Why yeah. was this the first thing it did?
1: Okay, so because the recession was of an unusual kind, so or at least a large part of it was of an unusual kind, which is that we, the government was asking people to voluntarily, you know, to, not voluntarily, it was asking people to shut down economic activity, which is sort of essentially mandating that businesses that would, in some sense, have been viable, not go ahead. They're not operate as usual. That's very different to an ordinary recession where, you know, maybe there's been some like financial market shock. The market has kind of messed up. and Businesses like made some bad decisions and they go under. This is a situation where, you know, perfectly viable, perfectly ordinary, you know, businesses are just being told you cannot operate as normal. Because you can't operate as normal, many of those businesses absent some other kind of policy response would say we've got to let tons of people go. Like if we can't operate, we can't operate. We we don't have a job for you anymore, and so that would have led to kind of like an across the board meltdown of the Australian economy if all of these businesses that are being told you can't operate as usual were making a kind of ordinary business calculation to let people go, and so instead what we had was programs like JobKeeper to try and encourage businesses that were not able to operate as normal to nonetheless not let workers go, to keep them on the books with the hope that when the economy was able to restart closer to normal, that people would be able to be brought back into economic activity quite quickly and that businesses would be able to get back to something approximately like normal economic activity more readily than they would have if they'd let a whole bunch of people go and then need to rehire or you needed new businesses to kind of to spring up now job is not the only thing that was going on there were also these like large increases in the what was the new start allowance now the job seeker allowance because of course you know even with the job keeper uh programs in place and the other kinds of uh, stimulus in place there are still of course many businesses going under uh, and so many people becoming unemployed and so you also need that extra degree of safety net present mm. but uh the nature of, of the game here is trying to maintain as much income in place as possible so that the economy doesn't like cascade out of control. An important way to think about this is that, of course, while many businesses were directly locked down, and so there were like direct effects, uh, well, lockdown and/or in very face-to-face kinds of activities where they were suffering from like, reduced activity. In general, there are many other kinds of businesses which where that isn't so much a consideration. But as people begin to feel poorer, as as the recession takes hold, they're going to you know not get people like spending in the same way. And so other kinds of uh, sectors of the economy that maybe sort of less directly exposed were still still kind of falling into recession as well. And so what the what the wage subsidy schemes do is to try and arrest that trying to say, let's not have a, like, a, like a spiral of people not spending, therefore incomes falling, therefore other people not spending, therefore other people's incomes falling and the whole thing kind of running off the rails. But because the crisis was so quick to hit and so comprehensive in affecting so much of the economy so quickly, the size of the intervention had to be like truly dramatic compared to sort of historical, you know, fiscal policy measures.
0: I mean, that raises the question of, and it always comes up in Australian politics, this question of balancing the budget, mm-hmm. um, which we always talk about when we talk about government spending, and now we've just lashed out billions of dollars. Is it actually important to have a balanced budget? I think it
1: depends on like what horizon you're talking about. So right now is this time when we should not be worried about that. The whole point of a government and the possibility of a government borrowing is in order to get through unprecedented situations that cannot be tackled at the level of individual households or businesses, right? where you need a truly like social collective response. And so right now is a time when exactly we, you know, the government should be using all of its fiscal capacity to s- support the economy and get us through to the other side. The flip side of that is, in order to have the capacity to borrow in crisis times like now, you need to have relatively prudent fiscal policy, prudent budgetary policy in more ordinary times. You shouldn't be running huge deficits, building up a huge amounts of government debt in tranquil times. Because if you do, when you get to a crisis time like now, you won't be able to use fiscal policy as much as you should be. And that's a very, very consistent finding in the economic research literature, that countries that follow relatively prudent fiscal policies in tranquil times, in normal times, then have the greatest uh, capacity to deploy fiscal policy correctly, that is to say, in a very, very stimulatory way in a crisis. To kind of come back to your question, budget surpluses or balanced budgets, they're not a goal in their own right. They're an instrument. Budgetary policy is an instrument that we use to achieve certain uh, social outcomes that we want. And sometimes the correct instrument setting is that we should be running a surplus.
0: Right now, the correct instrument setting is we should be running big, big deficits. That was Professor of Economics, Chris Edmund. As we've heard, the virus would have caused a recession with or without restrictions because people were already decreasing their activity. We've heard that recessions are bad because they increase unemployment, which causes people to spend less, which causes people to lose more work, which causes people to spend less. And that's why the government's first response to the pandemic was to increase support for jobs. And as Chris has told us, this is not the time to worry about government spending and big blowouts in the budget. It's the time to spend as much as we need to to fix the economic crisis. Subscribe to Econ19 for new episodes. For more insights on the economics of the coronavirus, head to our website, fbe.unimelb.edu.au forward slash Econ19. Econ19 is recorded on Morandri land. The podcast is produced by Seth Robinson, Sophie Thomas and me, James Whitmore. The theme music comes from Premium Beat.